please remain standing as we read the scripture that we'll be studying this morning. Uh, the Proverbs chapter 17, verses 10 through 15. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. An evil man seeks only rebellion, and a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cub rather than a fool in his folly. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike and abomination to the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Thanks, Mike. Good morning. One more time. Good morning. Well, my name is uh, my name is Jeff Ashley, one of the pastors here. Glad that you're with us this morning. We will be in Proverbs 17, as uh, as Mike uh, just read. So, as you're uh, making your way there in uh, in the text or on your uh, device, uh, I want to just talk a little bit about what we're doing, and so. Uh, the past uh, few weeks, we've been in the book of Proverbs, and uh, unlike what we did with Ephesians uh, before this, or uh, Mark before Ephesians, or what we're about to do as we step into Romans starting in January, uh, we're not walking through the entire book of Proverbs. We're taking some select Proverbs, and we're walking through them. We're still doing uh, exposition. We're still doing exegesis. We're still trying to ask the question, what does the author intend in this particular section of the text? Uh, but it's a little bit different because we're not walking through the entire uh, book. And today's text in particular is going to be different from some of the texts that we've looked at over the past uh, couple of weeks. So if you've been with us, uh, you know that over the past couple of weeks, we've been taking sections of Proverbs that are uh, inherently connected. And, uh, and so we've looked at, uh, in chapter 2, there's an entire, the entire chapter is one flow of thought. And, uh, and then uh, we looked last week, chapter 3, uh, that's one entire flow of thought. The, all 12 verses uh, were, were intimately connected. What we see in our passage today, though, is that the passage are disconnected. They're, uh, they're connected in the sense of this is where they've kind of landed in Scripture, but disconnected in themes. They're not thematically arranged. They're not topically arranged. And so this is going to kind of provide us a, a different method as we go through this. Again, this is still going to be expositional, still exegetical, uh, but uh, sometimes whenever you're getting water, uh, sometimes you use a bucket and sometimes you use a ladle. And, uh, and so likewise, the way that we're going to go about expositing the sermon today is going to be a little bit uh, different. And, uh, and so uh, this will be an interesting exercise for us as, uh, as we kind of look at each individual text. And it kind of gives us an opportunity to to kind of, in each individual verse, kind of do a little sermonette. And so that's what we're going to be doing uh, this morning. A few years back, I was with some buddies, and we were driving uh, out to the Possum Kingdom area, uh, and, uh, which is a lake uh, just uh, to the west uh, of the, the Metroplex. And so uh, we're driving out there because we're going to do some dove hunting. This was my first time to ever go uh, dove hunting. I'm not much of a hunter. I killed a deer whenever I was a kid, and I cried. And ever since then, I don't really hunt all that much. Uh, but I love dove hunting after this experience. But we drive there. I have no idea what to expect because it's my first time. And so we drive uh, there, and one of my buddies has a, a huge 
plot of family land uh, out there. And, uh, and so we pull up, and there is uh, a little edifice, a little building there. That's where we're going to be staying. Uh, we're just going to spend one night. We're going to hunt in the evening and hunt in the morning and then uh, take off. And, uh, and so we pull up to the building, and again, I have no idea what to expect. And they had kind of told me, you know, this is not going to be the Ritz. Uh, this is not going to be, uh, you know, even uh, Motel 6. This is going to be kind of roughing it. And so we go and we open uh, the, uh, the door uh, to the little structure there, and we are hit with the most foul stench that you can imagine. Like the kind of thing that, that just instantly makes you begin to dry heave. Uh, because it is so bad. And I'm thinking, is this normal? Like, is this what hunting is? It just always smells this bad. But from the reaction of my friends, I realized, no, that's not the case. Something is unusual about, uh, about this smell. And so uh, we open the windows, we turn on some box fans, uh, we open some doors and try to let the smell dissipate. And we go and we uh, play around on the, uh, his, his mule, uh, not the animal, but the vehicle, and, uh, and, and we go and uh, make it all the way back, and we walk in, and it's still, I mean, the same smell there. It's just saturated into everything. So we decide we have to find this smell because we have to sleep here uh, tonight. And, uh, and so we start looking, and uh, we spend about 30 minutes uh, looking. And then finally, one of my buddies goes to move this empty uh, styrofoam uh, cooler, and he knocks it over, and we find it's not empty. It's actually filled with rancid meat and blood that just gushes out all over the place. Gets all over the carpet, uh, gets all over the floor, gets all over the sofa, gets all over everything. And so uh, I have a weak stomach, so if I'm retching already, the sight of rancid meat and uh, blood just kind of covering everything was just too much for me. And, uh, and so anyway, uh, my point of this whole story is uh, there are consequences. There are consequences to our actions. Now, unfortunately, we had to deal with the consequences of uh, my buddy's brother who had gone hunting up there and had just conveniently forgotten to bring the meat home that he had pulled out of the freezer and uh, had just left it uh, sitting there. So we had to deal with those consequences. That's really what our text is about this morning. So all of these verses, although they're not connected in terms of a theme or a topic, there is this sort of... uh, uh, idea that kind of is uh, woven between each of them, and that's this strand uh, that talks about the idea of consequences. You see, throughout Scripture, there's a number of different ways that the authors of Scripture uh, will use to encourage us towards righteousness, to encourage us towards, to use the language of Proverbs, wisdom, and to discourage us from pursuing unrighteousness or foolishness. Oftentimes what they do, and, and we've seen this over the past few weeks, oftentimes what they do is they just commend the beauty of wisdom. We saw that in chapter 2 where we saw that, uh, that wisdom is more precious than silver and gold and hidden treasure. And last week as Jerry talked about Proverbs chapter 3 where we saw uh, that the reward of righteousness, the reward of wisdom is a long life in favor with the Lord. So that's one strategy that the authors of Scripture will use to commend the beauty of righteousness, to commend the beauty of wisdom. But another strategy that they use is to talk about the horrors of sin, the horrors of folly. It's not an either-or. It's not that uh, the Bible only is going to talk about rewards. Sometimes it talks about consequences, and that is what our text is going to be dealing with uh, today, the consequences, the horror 
uh, the ugliness of sin and, uh, and foolishness, the dangers, the perils, the pitfalls, the traps of pursuing a life that is marked by folly. So let's pray uh, together and then we'll dive into the text. I want to just ask that you begin by praying for yourself. Just ask that the Lord would incline your heart to His testimonies and open your eyes to behold wonderful things in His Word, that He would reorient you where you are walking in with presuppositions and assumptions that are incorrect as all of us are walking into this room, uh, that He would be gracious to you to remove those and remove impediments and obstacles to you participating in uh, our worship together as we hear His Word. And then I would ask that you'd pray that for those around you, your husband, your wife, your children, a friend, a stranger, whoever's around you, just that the Lord would give us this corporate uh, experience of His Word this morning and the ability to listen to it and to uh, not only hear it, but to heed it. And then lastly, that you would pray for me, that the Lord would give me faithfulness and boldness and courage to proclaim His Word as He intended. And so, Father, we are grateful for the opportunity You've given us this morning to gather together uh, as a body and to consider Your Word. I pray that You would use this, Lord, to awaken us, not only to the beauty of Your Son, uh, but to the ugliness and the horror of rejecting Him, not only to the beauty of wisdom, but to the ugliness of foolishness and folly and the consequences and dangers uh, of living a life that is walking down that path. So help us this morning, we ask, because You're a good Father, and so we trust that You desire to give us good gifts. And uh, one of those gifts that you've given us is your perfect word. And so help us this morning to understand it and apply it to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll begin in uh, Proverbs 17, verse 10, which says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. So one of the first marks of a fool is that he won't respond to discipline. I don't remember this, but uh, my parents tell me that when I was a kid, it did not matter how many times they spanked me or how hard they spanked me, that I would just continue to, I would laugh at them as they were spanking me, which would only then intensify the amount of spanking. That's a fool. That's what a fool does. A fool doesn't respond to rebuke. A fool doesn't respond to uh, discipline. Whereas one of the marks of wisdom is receiving rebuke, correction, and, uh, and discipline. So you might say, if the pen is mightier than the sword, that for the wise, a word is even more powerful than a whip. We see this theme of the beauty, the, the grace of rebuke and correction and reproof and discipline throughout the book of Proverbs. In fact, that's one of the main themes of the book of Proverbs is that uh, those who are wise are marked by discipline. Those who are wise are marked by a sensibility to be reproved, to be rebuked, to be corrected. And, uh, and so we'll look at a few verses that talk about that. Proverbs thirteen eighteen, Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. Proverbs 15, 5. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. Proverbs 15, 31, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Proverbs 6, 23, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. 
And lastly, Proverbs 10, 17, whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. And that's just a handful of Proverbs that talk about this. So that's the last one that we read, but there are dozens and dozens of others that we could talk about that show this overarching theme of the book of Proverbs. That is, wisdom, one of the marks of wisdom is a willingness to receive correction, a willingness to receive rebuke, a willingness to receive uh, reproof. Whereas folly is marked by a stubbornness. Wisdom receives correction. Folly, you might say, is senseless, while wisdom is going to be sensitive to discipline. We talked to a couple of weeks back, and we said there is something that's even worse than folly, and that is uh, being wise in your own eyes. That is being so hard-headed that you're hard-hearted towards the Lord, so hard-headed in uh, failing to receive rebuke and correction that you grow hard-hearted towards the Lord. And there are so many examples of this pattern that you see throughout Scripture whereby a wise man will receive correction, but a fool will not. Consider uh, the case of David. So David has uh, done all of these atrocities before the Lord. Uh, He is responsible not only for adultery, but he's responsible for murder. He's responsible uh, because he is the head of Israel. He's thus responsible for any calamity that comes upon uh, the people. He's responsible for all of this gross, immoral sin. And Nathan comes to him and shares a parable that reveals uh, to David his sin. And David is undone. Nathan says, you are that man. You are the man that is guilty of this sin. And what's David's response? Humility, contrition. In that very moment, he begins to weep as he experiences repentance. That's a wise man who responds to rebuke a wise man who responds to correction. Or consider the example of Peter. And in, in Luke's gospel, the way that Luke is telling uh, the story is, is that after Peter has denied Jesus three times, Jesus looks over at him. And just a simple look from Jesus, combined with the knowledge uh, that Jesus had prophesied that he was going to reject him. And Peter in that moment is undone and he goes out and he weeps bitterly. Why? Because he's wise. He's sensitive to the work of the Spirit because the Spirit has inclined his heart toward wisdom. And so he's undone in that moment. David and Peter both are undone emotionally and spiritually as a result of rebuke. Now contrast that picture, if you will, to Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. And Pharaoh is not undone, but Pharaoh's kingdom is undone before him. His kingdom lies in ruins, and yet even so, he still remains obstinate and hard-hearted, unwilling to listen. You know, the default response of the human heart to rebuke, to correction, to discipline is not worship and thanksgiving. That's not the natural response to our heart. It's probably not even if uh, those of us who have walked with the Lord for 10 years or 15 years or 30 years or 50 years, probably that's not your default response every time that someone comes to you. The default response of the human heart is oftentimes to, be, to, to become defensive, to, to try to justify, to explain. Well, let me, uh, if only you would understand my rationale for why I did what I did, then surely you wouldn't be rebuking me. You wouldn't correct me. Or if that doesn't work, to go on the offensive. 
Yes, I, I may have this issue, but look at all the things that you got going on in your life. I may have a log in my eye, but I can count at least five or six splinters in your own. That's the default response of the human heart. And these responses, even for those of us who know the Lord, these responses still reveal this lingering folly in our hearts. But hopefully what we're seeing as we grow to know the Lord, hopefully what we're seeing as we walk down the path of, uh, of wisdom and not down the path of folly, hopefully what we're seeing over time is this gradual, uh, gradual lessening of the time between our initial response, which is to become defensive or offensive against the person who brings a rebuke against us, and our ultimate response, which is not only to tolerate rebuke, but to treasure it as a means of grace whereby we are conformed to the image of Christ. So practically, I think this verse is asking us, are you more like the man of understanding or the fool? How do you respond to correction, reproof, and rebuke? Does it go deep into your heart like a man of understanding? Or are you like a fool who it doesn't matter how many times you receive the whipping, you simply will not respond? Verse 11, An evil man seeks only rebellion, and a cruel messenger will be sent against him. There's, uh, there's some uh, debate over how you should actually translate this. Some people say a rebellious man seeks only evil, kind of switching those two uh, words there. There's some difficulty, though, with how you translate it, but the general idea is actually pretty simple. You might be asking, what kind of rebellion, what cruel messenger is he talking about? Those are great questions, and uh, if you read different commentaries, they might answer different ways in terms of what's the rebellion, uh, what's the cruel messenger. But really, the point of Proverbs, as with, uh, with uh, Jesus' parables, is not to isolate each individual detail and, uh, and to build an entire sort of uh, theology around that detail, but it's really to, to see what's the overarching point, or what's the undergirding point here? What's the, what's the main idea that the author intends uh, here? And the point of this proverb is, again, that there will be consequences for wickedness and rebellion. Biblically, we find that rebellion is the essence of sin. That in our very hearts, who we are apart from Christ, in Adam, that we all long for rebellion. We love rebellion. We treasure rebellion. Rebellion against our parents, rebellion against government, rebellion certainly against God. Rebellion is our love language in the flesh. That is who we are apart from Christ. Why? Because autonomy is the goal of the fallen human heart. That's the goal. If you want to know what it is that mankind uh, desires in his flesh, it's autonomy. It's to be your own law, to be your own boss, to be in control, to be your own God, in essence. This is who we are apart from Christ. We are all evil and all naturally desiring rebellion. We're like Israel in the book of Judges. If you read that book, there is this line that occurs a number of times throughout it, and it becomes this thematic verse or thematic statement on the state of Israel there in the time of the Judges. And that is, in those days, there was no king in the land, and people did what was right in their own eyes. And we've seen over the past few weeks the dangers of doing what's right in your own eyes. We've seen what happens when people trust in themselves and their own wisdom. 
We've seen what happens as we considered in Proverbs 3 last week where it says, do not lean on your own understanding. Zach said it like this a few weeks ago. He said, trust anybody except for yourself. No one has ever lied to you more than you have. So don't trust yourself. Don't lean on your own understanding. If you lean on your own understanding, a cruel messenger will be sent against you. If you lean on your own understanding, a harsh wind will come and blow your house down. This verse is saying that you are not the king and those who live like it will face the justice of the true king. That's what this verse is saying. You might even relate this to the previous verse. Because fools won't respond to rebuke, a cruel messenger is sent as punish, punishment. And I think no one experienced this more than Pharaoh. Consider again, Pharaoh, his kingdom lies in ruins. He refuses to listen to Moses. He refuses to listen to the plagues. And a cruel messenger is sent against him. And he has no choice but to listen as the Red Sea falls over his army. That was a message he couldn't miss. So again, this verse is actually pretty simple in that it's simply commending righteousness. Don't pursue rebellion or evil or else you will face consequences and condemnation. Verse 12, let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. I wonder why they translate this as a she-bear. We don't call it like a he-bear, right? Uh, So a male bear is called a boar. Uh, A female bear is called a sow, but I guess not enough people know that. And so uh, the translators want it to be just super simple, and so they just say a she-bear. Whenever I think of a she-bear, I think of one story in particular from the Scripture. You might be familiar with it. Uh, It's the story of uh, there is a time that the prophet Elisha, S-H, not Elijah with a J, uh, but Elisha is walking along, and apparently uh, Elisha is follicularly challenged. He's bald. And, uh, and so these kids, these 42 kids, begin to uh, make fun of him. Uh, they say, uh, they call him baldy. And, uh, and so Elisha curses them and calls down she-bears on them. And, uh, and they maul all the 42 kids. Now, 42 kids is roughly the amount of elementary and youth that we have here at Parkway. So let that be a lesson to you. Any of you kids, if you want to make fun of Carl... May, may this be a, uh, be a lesson to you. For some reason, uh, bears are like cool in our culture today. They're kind of like this part of this uh, testosterone trifecta. You got beards, you got bears, and you got bacon. And that's like the perfect sort of testosterone thing. That's what it is to be a man. And, uh, and so if you want to waste an hour or so, you should just Google search. I don't recommend you actually waste an hour or so. But if you wanted to, you could just Google search bear memes, M-E-M-E-S, bear Memes. I spent about five minutes doing that for the, the sake of uh, research. And, uh, and here are some of the funny ones that I found. Uh, and so these are different things you can find on the internet. And so one of them, the first one was uh, that, uh, that people in sleeping bags are the soft tacos of the bear world. I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, the second one, I don't always kill things, but when I do, it's because they were things and I'm a bear. Third one, helpful tip, if attacked, play dead. It will be good practice for when you die a few minutes later. <laughs> and, then the, and then the lastly, uh, lastly, what to do if you're attacked by a bear and all you have is a knife. Step one, remain calm and stand still. Step two, when it attacks, stab repeatedly until you die. Parentheses, you're going to die regardless, so you might as well go for the pre-death bear stab record, which is 12. So now, obviously, not all bears are out to, uh, to kill us. 
But nevertheless, they can be fierce and ferocious. We even have a saying, don't poke uh, the bear, which they don't say about like llamas or something like that. And so they're known for their ferocity, right? And if you wouldn't want to get between a bear and her cubs, then you wouldn't want to get between a, a fool and his folly. That's the idea here. A few weeks ago, we saw that a fool is like this person who has been drinking, this drunk person who is just shooting arrows into a crowd. I actually had a, a, a friend uh, in, uh, in high school. We were out at a, uh, at a party, and, uh, and this fight broke out. And so my friend, in order to escape uh, from the fight and to make sure he didn't get hit, he just sprayed this uh, like, uh, kind of a pepper spray into the entire crowd. So then everyone falls down except for him, and he just gets to run away. That's a fool. My buddy was a fool. Uh, and so that's the general idea here, that fools are dangerous. That's why Proverbs will say, 14.7, leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. Proverbs 13.20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 18.6, a fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. Proverbs 14.16, one who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. Proverbs 21.20, precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Proverbs is full of examples of the danger of encountering a fool, especially when a fool is in the pursuit of folly. There's tons of biblical examples of this, of the danger of encountering a fool in his folly. Consider Saul's murderous rage against David. He's so uh, convinced that David is going to steal the kingdom from him that he goes on this rampage against David. Or even his own son, whenever his own son uh, goes and uh, eats of the honey and Saul makes this, uh, this foolish, rash vow and oath against him. Or consider the example of Herod's murderous rage, his foolish rage and folly as he goes and seeks to destroy all the infants of Bethlehem. Or the Sanhedrin's foolish rage, murderous intent against Jesus. Saul, Herod, the Sanhedrin, they're all like she-bears. That's what this verse is saying. Fools are dangerous and destructive. That's the point here. So we should avoid fools in their folly. So what does that mean for us? today. Great. So we are to avoid fools in their folly. We don't want to encounter them just like we don't want to encounter a she-bear that's been robbed of her cubs. What does that mean for us today? Well, obviously, sometimes you can't avoid a fool's folly. Sometimes you're just walking along and you run upon a bear and then you die, right? There's nothing that you can do about it. Sometimes if you're just in bear that's what I call bear territory, sometimes if you're just in their area, uh, you're going to run upon them. But in general, there are certain things that you can do if you know that you're going to uh, perhaps uh, have an opportunity to run into a bear. You can carry bear spray. You can make a lot of noise so as to not surprise them. You can have a group of people around you because there's safety in numbers. All of these sorts of ideas. Likewise, certain times you can't uh, avoid a fool in his folly. But in general, there are certain things that we can do, live our lives in such a way as to uh, prevent us from being carried away by a fool and his folly. Now, this doesn't mean, we'll talk about some of these things that we can do, but first, a caveat, this doesn't mean that we avoid fools. That's not what the text is saying. 
In some sense, if you're lost, you're a fool. The Bible's going to say that. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know wisdom. And if you don't know wisdom, then you are, uh, all you know is folly and foolishness. And so in some sense, we can't avoid fools. You and I are not to avoid fools completely or else we'd have to go out of the world. No, the same way that you would say uh, that uh, veterinarians or zoologists or something like that uh, need to minister to bears, we would say that we have a responsibility and obligation to minister to those around us. So the proper response of a Christian to a fool is not to look at them from a distance or to put them behind thick plexiglass or something like that, but to engage them. But we engage them knowing the dangers the same way that a zoologist or a vet or something like that would know the dangers inherent to working with these massive animals. So what are we to do with this? If what this is saying is not simply that we just circle the wagons and remove fools from our lives completely, what are we to do with this? What are some practical pieces of wisdom that we can take from this? I, I, I think of two in particular. First one I think this tells us to not be seduced by the deception of fools and their folly. Even as we minister to those that are around us that are lost and broken and hurt and foolish, even as we seek to minister to them, we need to avoid becoming one. You ever hear those stories of people who just go and live among the bears? And they're going to die, right? It's just a matter of time. It might be a month. It might be six months. It might be six years. But at some point... You're living among these animals. They're going to kill you. Likewise, if you begin to take on, if you begin to live like fools live, if you begin to treasure what fools treasure, you will be consumed by folly. So even as we're ministering among the lost and hurt and broken, we're not seduced by the deception of foolishness and folly. Secondly, I think this is saying that we should be alert and careful as we go about life. If you're in the woods and you're in grizzly country, you probably shouldn't be walking around with earbuds completely oblivious and defenseless to the danger around you. But when it comes to entertainment and spirituality on a spiritual level, don't we often do this very thing? Aren't we in danger of doing this very thing? We watch whatever we want. We listen to whatever we listen to. If you're getting life advice from Oprah or Dr. Phil, or anyone with the last name Kardashian, or Joel Osteen even, you're just opening yourself up to attack. You're walking through baratory with earbuds in, blindfolded with meat just hanging out of your back pocket, just waiting to be consumed. By the way, all of these dangers are why we encourage things like theological equipping here at the church, which is like bear spray which is like this ability to defend against foolishness, this ability to defend against the schemes of the enemy. That's why we also encourage vibrant, deep, gospel-centered community, whether that's in an actual formal community group or some other means of actually having deep community, not just like cheers where you just kind of get together with people and you talk about sports and weather and that kind of stuff, but actually where you know each other deeply and intimately because there's safety in numbers. And it's better to run upon a she-bear than a fool in his folly. Let's look at verse 13. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. This past uh, week at the Ashley home, 
Our diaper genie apparently ran out of wishes because it no longer trapped the smell uh, that uh, it should trap. And so you have this sort of saturating uh, scent, similar to the rancid meat of uh, my previous story. So we had to move the diaper genie thing out into the garage because there is this, this tendency of a smell to just kind of linger. Likewise, evil will linger. This proverb is actually pretty straightforward. You reap what you sow. There's a cyclical nature to evil, and like a bad odor, it lingers. There's a saying in the Talmud, which is a, a collection of, of Jewish traditions uh, that goes, do not throw a stone into the well whose waters you have drunk. That's the idea here. Don't return evil for good or else the evil you throw will boomerang back to you. It's not talking about impersonal karma. It's talking about divine justice. Again, I can think of a couple of biblical examples of this as well, both involving King David, one where he is on the good end and then one when he is on the evil end uh, of it. First, there's an example where he does good to a guy named Nabal whose name means foolish. And, uh, and so he does good to Nabal. He helps protect his, uh, his, his flocks. Uh, David and his men are out in the wilderness and they help, help protect his flocks. And then he goes to Nabal and he asks him a favor and Nabal says no and begins to curse David and refuses to help him. David has done him good and Nabal responds with evil. And we know biblically Nabal is struck down. Evil does not depart from his house. There is a consequence whenever he returns the good that David has done with evil. There's another example, though, where David is not on the good end of it. Uriah. Uh, Uriah has done nothing but good to David, to the king and to the kingdom. He has been faithful in battle. He has refused to defile himself. Whenever all of these other soldiers are away, he refuses to go home uh, to his own wife. He's done nothing but good to David, to the king and to his kingdom. And David responds with evil to him. And as a result... Evil doesn't depart from David's house. His sons rebel. His, his baby dies. His sons attempt a coup against him. So we see here this principle. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. To return evil for evil seems to be fairly normal uh, to us. We understand that it might even seem natural to return evil for good. Most of us are probably fairly adept or, or adept if, uh, if someone does good to us, we typically don't respond to that goodness with evil. If someone like, goes out of their way to let us in in traffic, that's not the person that we flip off. That's not the person that we try to cut off, right? That's the person we typically are nice to those people, right? We typically respond to good with good. Jesus even talks about that in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, what good is it to love those who love you? Do not even pagans do the same? This tends to be just the way that we are. We respond to good with good, and yet we shouldn't let ourselves off the hook so quickly. Think about all the examples in your life where you might be guilty of this. The words that you speak against your boss who's done good for you in hiring you. The words that you speak against your spouse in secret. The words that you speak against your in-laws, and on and on you could go. Or every one of us has probably been on the opposite end of that, where we've done good towards someone and they've responded to our good with evil. If you're a parent, you could probably say amen to that. You've experienced that, right? So every one of us has experienced this, and every one of us is guilty of doing this on a spiritual level. Is that not the essence of what sin is? God has only and always done good 
to us. And the response of the human heart is evil. God has only done good toward us, and we always respond by mocking His goodness and doing evil. And yet, in His grace, God doesn't cause us to reap what we sow. He does not curse us with the promise that evil will not depart from our house. God's response for His children when they do evil in response to His goodness, the way God responds is that He returns good for our evil and welcomes us into His house. Let's look at verse 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. A few years ago, Casey and I were uh, having a, a very meaningful, romantic New Year's Eve. Uh, we were at home just watching a movie. And it was about 11.30 or so, which was actually pretty late. I didn't think I would actually make it all the way to the new year. Uh, but, uh, but we were up late at night. And about 11.30 or so, we hear this loud crash in, uh, in the garage. Now, don't think like a creak or a pop or some of the other sort of noises that, uh, that you might typically hear at your house. Don't even think like a trash can being blown, uh, blown over or something like that. I mean, it, it, we heard a crash that was so loud that I could only assume someone's breaking into the garage. I always assume that, by the way, when I hear even the lesser noises. But this actually was somewhat justified. And, uh, and so I go and I grab a flashlight and I grab a weapon and I go out into the garage and I look, and I don't have to look long whenever all, all of a sudden I see this four... Uh, foot hole in the ceiling uh, where the ceiling has caved in and there's sheetrock all over my wife's car. Uh, apparently, uh, a couple of days uh, prior to that, uh, some people had come and were working on our air conditioner and they'd forgot to replace the pan, uh, the drip pan, and so it had just been dripping uh, for days until eventually it just broke through. kind of reminds me of what's going on right there, if you haven't noticed. By the way, I think tomorrow they start on the roof, fingers crossed. And uh, so we should have that, uh, that fixed uh, uh, pretty soon. But uh, that's the, the idea here of this proverb. Like a leaking roof, an argument builds and builds until it bursts, and then it's too late. Like the illustration you've probably heard before of trying to get toothpaste back into uh, a tube. So the author is saying, let it go. Quit before it breaks out. Find and fix the leaf before your roof caves in. I love Proverbs 19.11. I think this is good life advice uh, for us that is so countercultural today. Proverbs 19.11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Now, that's not saying that every offense should be overlooked, but it's saying in general we should have a tendency, a disposition of the heart that is willing to overlook the vast majority of little offenses against us. There are certainly times where it's worth it to have strife in conflict, there are things worth dying for. There's things worth fighting for. Absolutely, that is true. But laundry and traffic and dinner and those kinds of things aren't. I would wager that the bulk of our arguments, as we talked about a, a few weeks ago or, or a couple of months ago now and in uh, the book of Ephesians where it says, uh, be angry and do not sin. And we talked about the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. I would wager that the vast majority of us, the anger that we experience is not righteous anger. It's not righteous indignation. We're not upset primarily because God's kingdom is being affronted. It's because our own kingdom is. (laughs) 
a few months ago, we talked about uh, the biggest argument that Casey and I had ever had. We talked about it was over the air conditioner. She wanted it warmer during the winter. I wanted to save money. That was probably the closest we ever came to letting the sun go down on our anger. And I think the passage is saying to lay down your pride, your preferences, your privileges, and quit. Be willing to lose a silly argument like what temperature the house should be. There's a time and place for such conversations, but also there's a tone and a temper that should, uh, that should mark them. I'm reminded of, uh, of James, and James asked the question, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And he says, it's these internal desires, passions, preferences, privileges, pride. That's what typically causes our strife and quarrels. And it's like the letting out of water. Once it begins, it doesn't stop. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. One of the things I love about Proverbs as a book is how universal it is. Like if you can't, if you're reading this passage and you can't find an application in your own life, you're not looking because it applies everywhere. It applies in your job. It applies in your marriage. It applies in the way that you relate to your in-laws, the way that you relate to your children. It applies to your homeowners association. I mean, on and on you could go with all the different places where this might apply. It reminds me of the New Testament. Paul's writing about lawsuits among believers, and he says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Again, that doesn't mean it's always best to just drop an argument. Some arguments are worth having. Some fights are worth fighting. But it does mean that our hearts should be marked by humility and patience and a willingness to find and fix the leak before it costs us dearly. Let's look at our final verse, verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. We'll camp out on this one a little bit longer than the others. So imagine, I want you to, to imagine something. Imagine that you're a judge on a hypothetical case. All right, don't think of O.J. Simpson or Amanda Knox or the Scranton Strangler or something else you might have uh, a, a formed, if not informed, opinion on. This is just purely hypothetical, and you have a choice. All right, you have a choice, but you only have two options. These are your two options. One is you could either potentially convict somebody who's innocent, or you can potentially let somebody go who's guilty. Those are your only two options. You can't actually get it right. Your only two options are you potentially convict the innocent or you acquit the guilty. Which would you choose? Most of us tend to default toward one end of the spectrum or the other. We choose the lesser of two evils, uh, if you will. The American legal system, some of you know this, was originally founded in such a way as to risk to give a preference toward one of those at the expense of the other. And so the American legal system was founded in light of a kind of post-enlightenment tradition. That includes guys like Voltaire who wrote, it's better to risk saving a guilty man than to condemn an innocent one. And so they've said, we would rather allow a guilty person to go free than to lock up an innocent person. That's where our legal system has, uh, has landed historically. That's why we're familiar with terms like preponderance of evidence and innocent until proven guilty and beyond a reasonable doubt whether you watched L.A. Law or Law and Order or Matlock or whatever it is, you know these phrases. They're kind of part of our vernacular, our cultural understanding, our cultural conversation on the topic. That's where our legal system has landed. 
but our culture is far different from the courtroom. And I think there's been a swing of the pendulum, uh, if you will, toward preferring uh, the, uh, the possibility of potentially allowing the guilty to go free to allowing in our current cultural climate the possibility that we might actually convict the innocent. There seems to be, if you read Facebook and Twitter and the news and those sorts of things, there seems to be this movement away from innocent until proven guilty to guilty to, uh, until uh, proven innocent. It seems to be this swinging of the pendulum where it doesn't really matter whether someone is guilty or not. Facts and truth are now incidental and uh, inconvenient. By the way, I think this is really interesting. As, just as, a, as an aside, uh, this willingness to condemn the innocent, this swinging of the pendulum over here is really ironic because in doing this thing, in being willing to condemn the innocent, you're also then doing the very thing you're trying to avoid. Because in condemning the innocent, you also condone the guilty. So think of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, right? If you convict Joseph for assaulting Potiphar's wife, what does that mean about the one who is truly guilty in the story? She goes free. So if you condemn the innocent, you also, also oftentimes condone the guilty. If you convict Dr. Richard Kimball from The Fugitive, the one-armed man is free, right? Nobody's out there looking uh, for him. And so the irony of our current situation is even in swinging the pendulum, we don't avoid what we're trying to to avoid it's illogical. So some default on one end of the spectrum while others hang out on the other, but according to this verse, neither is good. Both to justify the wicked and to condemn the righteous, both of those alike are an abomination to the Lord. And so this passage, I don't think for us, could be any more relevant than it is uh, today. Read the news, check out social media, you'll see how pertinent this is. Ezekiel Elliott right now sitting out for six weeks. Maybe guilty, maybe not. I don't know. But he's sitting out. Making a murderer in the Serial podcast, if you follow those, they've ignited this firestorm of conversation, really calling into question both of these guys' guilt. And so either they are criminals who are justly getting what they deserve as they sit in prison, or they are these innocent pawns of a, a system that has failed uh, them. And this is everywhere in our culture. Remember what Zach talked about a few weeks ago. He talked about uh, the fact that we have taken objective truth off the throne and we've replaced it with subjective feelings. It's called existentialism. And so what now sits on the throne, what now is able to render judgment is not what's actually true necessarily. It's the way I feel. It's the way I think. It's my opinions. It's my preferences. It's my biases or uh, presuppositions. And so to kind of illustrate this point, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention a couple of topics, and they're kind of, kind of infringe a little bit on some red and blue party lines. And my goal is not to be political. We don't preach politics from the pulpit, but we do preach the gospel of the kingdom. And the gospel in, of the kingdom includes subjects that even infringe upon politics. And so we're going to be faithful uh, to try to talk about some of those things. If the goal of preaching is to bring all of God's Word to bear on all of life, then we have to talk about even some things that are somewhat spicy and politically uh, charged. And so let me begin with police shootings. Again, controversial and spicy. Have there been unjustified shootings? Undoubtedly. I say this with 
uh, my brother-in-law is a SWAT officer down in Houston, and he would be the first to admit some shootings aren't justified, but have there also been justified shootings? Absolutely. It's always tragic. You ask a police officer this, he'll be the first to tell you, it's always tragic when someone is shot. There's never a question, is that a tragedy? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that it's always unjustified. It doesn't mean that there's never a warrant uh, for uh, such a thing. The problem is when people who have no ability how to assess the difference between what is justified and unjustified begin to assess and to critique and to pass judgment on something that they're honestly not fit to judge. See, I think what's happened is we've become this post-fact society where justice is all the rage but without any idea of really what justice actually entails, what that word actually means. And as a result, we're in danger of potentially committing an actual justice in response to the appearance of another. But you know, logically, logically, just thinking about this logically, logically you cannot know whether or not something is justified unless you know whether or not something is just. And you can't know whether or not something is just unless you know what is the truth. And you can't know the truth without the facts, which are neither inconsequential nor inconvenient. Or more recently, moving on from police shootings, more recently into allegations of abuse. Every day for the past few weeks, there have been uh, reports against celebrities and politicians and on and on. I have no doubt that some of them are true. Maybe even most of them, maybe even all of them. But I don't know that, and that's the point. We've become this society that is so quick to risk potentially ruining somebody's life on the basis of an accusation. I'm honestly, I'm not implying that any of the recent allegations are uh, false. Far from it. I'm implying that our cultural climate and our methodology for arriving at the truth is broken. Whereby, whereby we, it just seems like we're, we, we just circle the wagon and, and just kind of defend whoever it is that's in our camp, even if our position is defenseless. If something doesn't fit our narrative, we just simply throw it out. We want to go skip the investigation and the trial and go straight to the sentencing. But I think biblically, if we are to do what this passage is telling us to do and fighting for justice, I think the, the Bible is telling us we should be fighting for truth because there's no justice apart from truth. Does anybody remember Snopes.com? Snopes.com is the site that you would go to when your uncle would email you saying that the deposed Nigerian prince wanted to give him millions of dollars. And so you would send him a link to Snopes.com that would say, this is an urban legend. Please stop sending me these email forwards. In a sense, that's what Christians are to be. We are to be Snopes.com. We are to be the Mythbusters. We are to be out there as voices for truth, not simply the voices of opinions and preferences and those sorts of things. Because the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. So where true, and undoubtedly some of these accusations are absolutely true, where true, these abuses are gross and immoral, and there should be absolutely severe consequences. Those who are truly abused should be comforted, they should be heard, they should be believed. But the problem is that not all who claim abuse are abused, and that makes things unfortunate and messy. And in such cases, for the accused to face consequences is also gross and immoral. See, it feels right to simply say that we should always believe the accuser. 
I know someone who said at a church conference, you should never question. When there's an allegation of abuse in the church, you absolutely should never question it. And part of me absolutely sympathizes with that statement. I can't imagine adding to the shame and humiliation and the pain of being abused, adding to that the shame and humiliation and pain of not being believed. I can't even imagine that. But at the same time, I know for a fact that there are false allegations that are made. And if this is true, if there's no follow-up, if there's no questioning, if there's nothing like that, then when Potiphar's wife says that Joseph assaulted her, you just throw him in prison. Or when two women both tell Solomon that the baby is hers, you just cut it in half or give it to whoever speaks first or the loudest. But that's not the way the Bible tells us to make decisions. We don't simply listen to whoever speaks first or the loudest because God cares deeply for justice. Deuteronomy 25.1, if there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, that's the goal, that you actually assess the truth and you do your best to actually decide who is actually innocent and who is actually guilty and there is a differentiation between the two. Or Proverbs 24.24, whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by people, abhorred by nations. Or Proverbs 18.5, it is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. Or Isaiah 5.23, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. So all of these verses are saying that God is deeply concerned with justice, but what is justice? Biblically, there's a standard for justice, and that is truth, fact, that which actually corresponds to reality, not feelings, not emotions, not prejudices or bias or opinions or political party or preferences. Justice is not something that is subjective. It is objective. It's grounded in this objective reality that is whatever corresponds to reality. That's why God appoints elders in Israel and He gives instructions in the law to help assess the truth. He says there must be multiple witnesses and that uh, the witnesses can't be biased and whoever hears the case can't be biased. So biblically we see that God is not in favor of the accuser or in favor of the accused in all cases. God is in favor of the truth. He's not on the side of the accuser. He's not on the side of the accused. He's on the side of whichever is the actual truth. And that means that if we're going to mirror Him, if we're going to image Him, if we're going to be conformed to His image and act like Him and be holy as He is holy and understand truth like He does, then we have to be willing to question and critique both sides. Even the side of our own party. Even the side of our own narrative. You have to judge a shooting on the actual circumstances. You have to be willing to critique, absolutely critique, the accused abusers, but also abusive accusers. But no, none of us, no, nobody wants to critique both sides because then nobody likes you. Right? You're not friends with either side if you are willing to critique both sides of an argument. So let me be clear, clear absolutely. Unjustified shootings are an abomination. Absolutely clearly. Sexual or physical or any other form of abuse is an abomination. If there were a stronger word than abomination, I would use it. I don't know of a stronger one, though. 
Those things are an abomination, but so are false accusations against an officer or a coworker or an ex-girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever it might be. Those are also abominations. They're horrid. They're gross. They're immoral and sinful. And we as Christians should be outraged at any and all injustice that we see in society around us. Not just the type of injustice that fits whatever our narrative is. We should be outraged by unjustified shootings. We should be outraged by abuse. But we should be all, also be outraged at those who would resist lawful arrest. We should be outraged by those who would force an officer's hand. So the question is, are we, are we as outraged at both sides? Or are we willing to kind of make peace with one injustice in order to continue our war against another injustice? Biblically, we can't pay Peter, rob Peter to pay Paul by committing one injustice to atone for the other. And we can't allow our feelings to object to the facts. And I think if this stings any of us in any place, it should. It should hurt like discipline does. It's hard work for a parent to allow their child to continue to cry it out as they learn how to go to sleep. Likewise, it's hard work for us. It's discipline for us to not listen to our feelings, to ignore our feelings when they're screaming out something that is objectively false. So in light of this, I want to just give us some practical admonitions since the book of Proverbs is this profoundly practical book. One in particular, and that is in hearing any accusation or considering any alleged injustice, we should be hungry for and thus humbly seek the truth while withholding judgment. That is absolutely difficult to do, nearly impossible for us. But truth and justice biblically demand that we ask questions and gather the facts while being wary of our feelings. In other words, we can't be rash. We can't be foolish. We can't begin to build the gallows even before we've built a case. And then what do we do when the truth remains unknown? We've gathered all the evidence we can. It's circumstantial. After all, we live in a day when righteousness doesn't yet flow down like waters Injustice like an ever-flowing stream. So what is it that we do whenever we don't know? We don't know what's true. We don't know what true justice actually is in an individual case. First, we pray. And I don't mean that to be a cliche thing. Never, prayer is never a cliche thing, but we might respond to it as if it is. But there have been a number of cases over the years where we've sat across from uh, a married couple and they're experiencing relational strife, and we highly suspect that there's an affair and there's no evidence of it whatsoever. And so we begin to pray that the Lord would uncover the truth. He would bring into light whatever is hidden in darkness. And there have been a number of times where there has been almost immediate verification of our suspicions. Tangible, real, demonstrable verification. I'm not saying that God will always do that. I'm saying that He can do that. And so I want to ask Him for that in these cases where I don't know what the answer truly is. I don't know what the truth actually is. So that's the first thing that we do in these cases. The second thing is to remind ourselves of ultimate restitution. It's the reality of, fall, of living in this fallen world that's not yet fully consummated into God's kingdom. The reality is there will be accusations uh, that are falsely made against you that you receive and you're not justified in them. There's also going to be times when the guilty go free. That's going to happen. But God promises that one day justice will reign the righteous will be vindicated and unrighteous will be punished. Because our knowledge may be limited, but God's is not. He is omnipotent. 
He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He knows all things and He is all just and justice will ultimately reign one day. So speaking of God's justice, I want to end by talking about an exception to this verse. We spent our time talking about how it is an abomination to both justify the wicked and to condemn the righteous. I want to talk about an exception. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord, but not always. There is an exception to this, and that is the gospel. God himself in one instance does both. He justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous. And far from being an abomination, this is the very heart of our hope in Christ. This is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is this glorious reality that God justifies the wicked. Romans 4, 5 says, And to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is the heart of the gospel that you and I are ungodly. We are wicked. We are guilty. There is no doubt whatsoever. Romans 4 is coming right after Romans 3 where it says, All have sinned. All are worthless. We have all turned aside. No one seeks for God. All are guilty. And God justifies the ungodly. And He does so because He condemns the innocent. That is His Son. 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So the heart of the gospel is this reality, that in order to justify His evil enemies, God the Father was willing to condemn His innocent Son. And how is that fair or just? How is that not an abomination? This verse says that in general that's an abomination. How is that not an abomination? I want us to think just briefly, why is it that condemning the innocent or condoning the guilty would be an abomination in most cases? Why is it? Because it mocks the law. It mocks the lawgiver. It threatens the community. If you allow uh, a serial killer to go free, then other people are in danger of being killed. All of these things are results, reasons why it's an abomination to justify the wicked and to condemn uh, the righteous. And yet at the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ does none of these things. It doesn't mock the law or the lawgiver. It magnifies His mercy. It doesn't threaten the covenant community. In fact, it actually creates the covenant community. That's the hope and heart of the gospel, that we were ungodly, we were wicked, we were unrighteous, and God took it upon Himself to justify us, to pardon us, to forgive us by sacrificing His own Son. And so if we love and trust Jesus, this is not an abomination. This is our boast and hope in Christ. So as we go to the table in communion here in a moment, we go with this expectation and hope in light of these truths. So let's pray and then we'll come together to the table knowing that it is the only place, the only place where the justification of the wicked and the condemnation of the righteous is a good and beautiful thing. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for where it does sting, where it does press upon our presuppositions, our assumptions, where it uh, pulls us against the current of culture and drags us into the conversation of Your kingdom and uh, into uh, a, a deeper form of wisdom than we might initially imagine. And I pray that You would help us, Lord, that You would make us a people 
who walk in wisdom, who boast in wisdom, who love wisdom, who treasure wisdom, the people who treasure truth and justice and all of these sorts of things. And so, as we considered all of these different topics in our sermon this morning, Lord, would you seal them on our hearts and make us live in light of who you revealed uh, yourself to be. And so, help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.